right, so we're back from our Christmas break. Yeah, ironically on the Feast of Candlemas, which and uh, the traditional calendar is the end of Christmas tide. So, the presentation <laughs> of the Lord is the technical name for the feast. So, this is where Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple and Simeon says, "Now my I can go in peace." So, yeah, great feast and you know, you can stop saying Merry Christmas now if you are those people who are like, no, no, Christmas is more than just one day. Like me. I'm one of those people. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so today we're going to be talking about Tolkien. Yes. Woo, John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Um, if you don't know him, uh, he then is... Then you live under a rock. Well, yes. <laughs> Yep. Jemima's looking this. Oh, give that to Daddy. Thank you, baby. It's sour for me to look at. Yeah. All right, now that my daughter has gone back downstairs, Tolkien. <laughs> Tolkien. So, Tolkien um, was a professor, and he wrote books. Um, the most famous, of course, being... The Lord of the Rings, one novel and three volumes. Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and The Return of the King. And also, that one book you've probably read as a child, The Hobbit. Yes. Not, also, you know, not to forget all of his other works that have been published posthumously. His works on um, on Beowulf and translating all kinds of things. Because Tolkien, first and foremost, was a linguist. Mm-hmm. And that was his passion. Actually, he created Middle-earth kind of almost for his languages. Right. And I mean, and he was useful for other things too. Um, when the French Dominicans back in the 20th century came out with the French edition of the Jerusalem Bible, when uh, basically it was decided that there should be an English translation, he was consulted for the book of Jonah. Um, so in a way, you could kind of say Tolkien tr- helped translate a translation of the Bible, you know, yeah. so it's, it's kind of cool. Um, and it's a pretty thick, uh, tra- uh, edition of the Bible too. Yeah. And, uh, no, no Tolkien fans library is set without it. <laughs> mine wasn't set until Nathaniel got it for me last yeah. year. Yeah. All right. So how did you get introduced to Tolkien's works? Well, um, kind of, I guess a little later than some might, some people might've been read the Hobbit when they were a kid at bedtime. I don't know. But for me, um, I don't want to say I was sheltered, but we didn't really have TV or cable growing up. And so back in the days of movie gallery and blockbuster, and I guess still family videos around, but in those type of movie rental stores, um, I remember that we had kind of exhausted our options. And then it was like, I'd never seen Lord of the Rings. And I knew I'd seen like the toys at the store, you know, with, you know, the fake plastic version of Sting and stuff. <laughs> and so I had no idea. And I think it was either fifth or sixth grade. I want to say sixth grade that I finally just sat down and watched it. Um, at least the Fellowship of the Ring. And I was just, you know, it was pretty amazing. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a masterpiece of a movie. Much later on, you'd figure out definitely uh, literature, masterpiece of literature too. Um, the whole Tolkien uh, legendarium, universe. yeah, legendarium, all of it. Um, but so I came through it to the uh, Peter Jackson movies. Um, I was thinking, I think I already like read Aragon, you know, by Christopher Paolini earlier that year, and so I was already you know getting heavy into fantasy, and so when I found you know the 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 big daddy of all fantasy, you know, of course that was a positive development. I think I just checked him out from the library at the time. Um, 
uh, I remember I did struggle, I think, at first with Fellowship of the Ring, just the way it was written. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did have to return to them. But when I first read The Hobbit, man, it was just great. Because, I mean, it was, I think it, for me at the time in my, you know, middle school brain, it was easier to digest The Hobbit, you know, because it's more like, it's more, it reads more like a storybook um, than, um, you know, uh, I would say Lord of the Rings kind of does sometimes. It has more of a childish tone to it, childlike tone. And I remember just loving The Hobbit. And it was just like, wow, this is really great. Um, and, you know, you mix in, you know, actually reading the books, you know, the Peter Jackson movies. And then, of course, the early 2000s were a great time for video games. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, and there is um, there is a Hobbit video game that has nothing to do with the later uh, uh, Peter Jackson movies that they made. It's just solely based on the Hobbit book. It's a great game to play, actually. Um, and then, of course, the covers... Uh, of the Peter Jackson movies that they made into uh, video games. So The Two Towers, The Return of the King, great, you know, hack and slashers. And then there's the ones where you could become, like, you could you could take on the the, the, the ring wraiths and you could become <laughs> the power of Sauron and take right. over Middle-earth. And, um, like, I know there was also one that was kind of, it was, a, it was an RPG, and it was kind of, it could get very formulaic and boring, but The Lord of the Rings of the Third Age, that was a really good game. Mm-hmm. Um and again, as RPGs can get, it can be very formulaic and, you know, you have to really level up if you want to get past, you know, a boss or anything. But, uh, I mean, I just remember spending hours and hours just being pretty much in Tolkien's universe by playing, you know, these games. Um, and, you know, this was even on the Game Boy, you know, mm-hmm. I would get the Tolkien games and, you know, be steeped in that universe all the time. So, yeah. And then... Um Middle Earth Shadow of War or Shadow of Mordor came out, which is a decent game. Really challenging. Shadow of War sucks. It is heresy. (laughs) Never play it. What do you think of uh, Lord of the Rings Online? You know, I've tried to play that multiple times and it will not work on my computer. It won't work on it. I've tried to play it and it's just, they want so much out of it. I mean, once you play it, it is interesting. It's just. You know, it's hard to get a gaming PC out there, you know, just for that. But, I mean, I, I would be keen to try it again. But, yeah, I know, get on that Steam account. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel weird playing online with other people in a, in a Tolkien world. Yeah. I kind of wish that they would make a game that's just set in the, in the first age, you know, still with Morgoth. And you could play through the events of Hurin, go to Gondolin, and... Uh, Nargothrond. Well, whoever has the properties and the licenses, I don't know if it's still EA. Are you listening? <laughs> you can make a lot of money. I think it's Warner Brothers. Actually. Warner Brothers now, yeah. Which is the, the studio that gave us the terrible and awful Shadow of War. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. But how were you introduced to uh, Tolkien and the Legendarium? Um, the, I remember hearing about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien a little bit when I was a kid and younger. Um, but I'd never seen or read anything of it. And I think what sparked it (laughs) was we'd come back from the mission field and at the end of 2001 and, uh, my mom was away from the house for a conference or something. So my dad took us to Burger King and we got a happy meal and the happy meal had some uh, Lord of the Rings little action figures with a Frodo whose sword lit up. (laughs) And so my dad saw that and we went to the, (laughs) we went to Blockbuster and we rented the animated 
Right. I forgot combat. about those. Yes. And so I watched that and I loved it as a kid. I thought it was amazing. And uh, then we, um, we moved to France and uh, my mom hadn't been very keen on us watching Lord of the Rings because she didn't mm-hmm. like the magic and all that. Right. But we moved to France and we were in a hotel. Again, my mom was gone. It was just me, my dad, and my brothers. And uh, in the hotel, they were playing the first Lord of the Rings. So we watched it together. And then as soon as we got back to our house, my dad went and rented the two towers. And we watched that. We didn't get to watch Return of the King until, and again, (laughs) this is in the early 2000s. So forgive me, but somebody pirated it for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And gave it to us, and it was the extended edition of uh, the the Return of the King, and so we'd watch that, and it was in French. That's how we watched Return of the King the first French. time, and then later on, <clears throat> I bought the bought the film set. But in between that time, uh, our school that we were affiliated with for homeschool recommended um, a list of books for kids in the middle school and early high school age. And The Hobbit was one of those books. So my mom kind of acquiesced. We'd, we'd kind of had her watch the first two films, and she she actually enjoyed them. And then so we got The Hobbit book, and my brother grabbed it as soon as it came through <laughs> the door. And my older brother, he is so slow in reading books. It takes him like – it took him a month and a half to read The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And I was desperate at that point. You know, finally, I think I got, it to, got him to give it to me before he'd even finished it. And I took it and I read it through that day and then the next day and I was done. And I loved it so much. I was reading it at night and laughing my head off while, you know, um, Bilbo was taunting the spiders and making up all his little songs and throwing rocks at him. I thought it was just amazing. And then in high school, I read or started reading Lord of the Rings. I had to rent it. I had to get it from um, libraries and things like that because I didn't own the books at that time. Mm -hmm. And... uh, but I, I, I would go online or I would find books and I would just devour everything I could about Tolkien. Anyone, anytime I was at someone's house and they had like the Silmarillion or, or any of the Tolkien books, I'd grab them and I'd hide away in the bathroom for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I would read them. Right. Yeah, kind of – in a way, it kind of reminds me of uh, just in general my childhood like uh, – um, Neither here nor there, um, but like I uh, wasn't able to read Harry Potter growing up, and so during I think middle school and early high school, um, I know I, even in elementary school I would like check it out from the library and at least read the Chamber of Secrets. But when I finally read this full series in f- full, like I I, uh, I was pretty much under the bed sheets reading with like a flashlight <laughs> the whole Harry Potter series and you know hiding. Uh, I would check out the movies from the library and hide them when my mom. Gone. and then I watch Harry Potter but um, you degenerate yes 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 indeed but um, yeah um, definitely definitely do love fantasy and uh, Tolkien is a good uh, gateway drug for that yeah and boy is he a heck of a drug right uh, over uh, last couple of weeks my wife and I went on vacation and uh, a co-worker had bought me uh, Children of Huron Mm-hmm. As a present, so I took that with me and I read it. Good lord, it's a great book. I mean, it sucks. The story sucks because <laughs> you're reading it and you're like, "Oh, I love Nargothrond," and oh, it's it's gone. Mm. And it's like, "Oh, I love," that. and it's gone. I just Turin was a. D- 
Yeah, you can just bleep that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was so full of freaking pride. Never listened to anyone. Destroyed everything he touched because of it. Mm-hmm. Which is the whole point of the story. Right. It's a... Tolkien understood uh, the nature of pride. Mm-hmm. And you find that theme recurring again and again and again in his works yeah, and his, nice, his books. Nice motif. All right, so just kind of some down low here of Tolkien. Um, Tolkien was born in the 1890s, um, and he wasn't very old. And uh, his, when his uh, father died, they were, again, and they were in Africa. At the time, his father had some banking. Wasn't he born a, in South Africa? Yeah, I believe so. His father uh, was in the banking profession. and But when he died, basically, uh, the Tolkien family went to England um, and at that time, um, basically, um, that was around the time when Mabel Tolkien um, uh, decided that she would come to the Catholic Church, converted to Catholicism. At that point, uh, you know, Father Tolkien um, of the family um, that, that uh, had been, you know, Baptist. Um, and then, of course, Mabel had some, you know, Methodist um, heritage. But um, basically at the point when Mabel Tolkien... Um, became Catholic, she got disowned um, by Tolkien's, Father Tolkien's side of the family, and it just was really rough, and so she was pretty much scraping to get by um, because uh, she was shunned for her faith, and needless to say, uh, when she came into the faith, so did um, her sons, uh, Tolkien being one of them, Um, and it's kind of a tragic story because, you know, they weren't, you know, Catholic long before um, Mabel Tolkien herself died, um, and basically the Tolkien boys were given as, uh, given a, a priest, uh, to be their foster father or they were wards of this priest. Um, and so, um, Father Morgan is his name, Father Francis Morgan. Um, and so, um, Tolkien grew up basically being under the care of a priest and he met his wife, um, not too long he met her in childhood, but couldn't propose or do anything like that until he was about 21. But he pretty much fell in love. Kind of, you have like a... Love at first sight. Love at first sight. So you think of Dante and Beatrice. Well, you have uh, Tolkien and his wife. So it's that kind of deal. And then, of course, you have within his own legendarium, uh, Baron and Luthien. Yeah, and the, you know, and that's what inspired it was his wife. Um, and her first name, I want to say, is Edith. Edith. Yes. So... Um, Moving on, um, Tolkien, uh, you know, uh, served in World War I um, as a young man. Um, and it's in World War I that a lot of the legendarium coalesces. I mean, and he's writing stuff down. Um, but he was a veteran. Um, and then after that, I mean, he's chiefly known throughout his life um, for being an academic. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's a linguist. And he's really big into North myth- Norse mythology, all this wonderful old world stuff. Um, and, I mean, you know, and being in academia, I mean, he's a contemporary of people like C.S. Lewis. So, yes, there's the Inklings, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that nice little literary cr- club where everybody gets to read and drink ale and, and so on. endlessly critiqued Lewis for creating an overt allegory. Right. So, <laughs> I mean... And then it pretty much goes on. And, and um, during, you know, um, this time of academia and so on, you're thinking, you know, anywhere from the late 30s all the way through, you know, World War II and in the early 50s, um, Tolkien writes The Hobbit, which, you know, is inspired from bedtime stories. 
Um, and it pub- it gets published um, and is, you know, there and it's successful. But, what, you know, Lord of the Rings took a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's writing that pretty much during World War II. And here's, of course, C.S. Lewis just, you know, writing book after book and he's just publishing, publishing. And, you know, he's, you know, and of course Narnia is very popular or whatever. And, C- and here's Tolkien. He's like, still writing the same dang thing. Yep. You know, here's here's Lord of the Rings. This, and he finally know. finishes it and it's too big to print. <laughs> It's too big to print, and you know, and that's that's one thing too. It's like the Lord of the Rings is called, you know, it's sometimes erroneously, erroneously a trilogy, but it's one novel in three volumes, and you know, of course, those are Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and Return of the King. But um, yeah, so um, after the Lord of the Rings comes out, um, you know, it, it receives. Interestingly enough, a kind of a hippie fan base in the Americas, um, <laughs> which you wouldn't think, but you know they really took to Lord of the Rings and I guess elves and you know flowing robes. I don't know. But. I think an argument could be made that he kind of started or jump started the modern Renaissance festival movement. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean because you know very exotic names and uh, you know armor, mail, all that stuff that you can make nice pl- nice souvenirs from. Um, yeah. I mean, it's cool. It is. Um, and he thought that the people who would get married based on ceremonies described in his books or in ceremonies inspired by it were kind of foolish. Foolish, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and so Tolkien, um, you know, he's kind of a... I don't want to say he's a boring guy, but a lot, um, I can't remember... But um, I remember his people called his lectures just really dry and whatever because he would just basically use the same lecture notes from decades and decades and just mm-hmm. read from them. And there you go. He's <laughs> often contrasted to Lewis because Lewis had you know a big booming voice and, and he was he was so bombastic and you know everyone loved his lectures. Whereas uh, Tolkien is literally just an academic. I'm making I'm making a paycheck. Here I am. <laughs> you know I'm writing the Lord of the Rings. Um, Except for when he gave um, his talks on Beowulf. Right. I mean, because he is the expert in the field for all this stuff. It's just... Yeah, he has his own translation for it. And he said, know. it said that when he would lecture for Beowulf, that the halls would be full. Right. He, he, would, he became so passionate about it that, um, you know, everyone wanted to be there and hear him speak. Right. And so, yeah. And then, so Tolkien, definitely just the greater portion of the 20th century. He, uh, he also, um, as a Catholic, was a Catholic... During uh, the uh, basically the Second Vatican Council, which was in the, the 60s, and he got to see some of the uh, um, post-conciliar things that happened, especially during the liturgy. Um, and uh, so he died in 1973, so pretty much a few years after uh, Paul VI came out with the Novus Ordo, um, right out of the Latin, the Latin Mass. And so, uh, you know, of course, the stories are that, you know, when they were starting to do some very banal um, translations of the liturgy, and you know, you know, the Lord sounding like something from Star Wars, you know, may the force be with you, but the Lord be with you, and also with you, and and stuff. With, um, basically, that Tolkien would fire back in Latin, um, <laughs> which you know is it's understandable. Um, you know, sometimes liturgical experimentation um, it, it can it can be very. Uh, distressing but it shows his character and again his love for the 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 traditional latin mass yeah um and i I would say this you know um if you want to know who tolkien is is like spiritually go um just go to a latin mass um they still exist they're still around um but you know there's a high mass and a low mass and high mass is going to be sung so misa cantata a low mass is going to be short and quick um but just kind of stay there in the silence 
and kind of, you know, sometimes when you hear, you know, a chant or something, you can kind of see elves, (laughs) you know, in your mind or something, you know, it's not hard to understand, like, you know, where things like Lothlorien or, um, you know, Rivendell come from if you just sit there and listen to Gregorian chants sometimes. But I would just say, I would just encourage you, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or whatever, just... Just go to a Latin Mass sometimes and see, you know, it's like, what inspired Tolkien so much that he would actually just fire back, you know, in Latin? Um, yeah. I mean, he was also, like, you can't understand any of his works unless you understand his his deeply held religious beliefs. And his, he was a Catholic. He was, he was a Roman Catholic. Catholic. He was very staunch that, and to the point of, again, yelling back in Latin when they were trying to change right. it. And and it must be noted that, you know, he his son was a priest, Um and uh, I don't know how true it is, but I, I, I remember reading that when his friend C.S. Lewis was pretty much on his deathbed, he brought his son with him. I don't know if it was like, oh, hey, become Catholic, but it was just it was just kind of there, you know, here's some pastoral care, whatever. But, you know, it's just who he was. Mm-hmm. He brought his son. His son's a priest. But, um, yeah, and um, you look at Tolkien, I mean, the, his faith, his Catholic faith is everywhere. Um, if you want to know kind of, you know, even like how he was a father to his sons. I mean, I encourage you to look at his, uh, letters, um, especially to his son, Michael. I mean, he has advice everywhere on, um, fostering a love for the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Um, and then just talking about, um, marriage and how monogamy is hard sometimes, but it is possible and can only come through true sacrifice mm-hmm. and um, self-denial, um, which is quite beautiful. I don't have the citations because I left my book at home. Yeah. But and you know, one thing about Tolkien is he didn't just, you know, talk about things. He actually lived it. When um, he was an academic, busy schedule writing a book or books, and he, he it still said that whenever his his kids would come to the door, he would stop everything and play with them, or he would spend time with them and just listen to them what they what they wanted and what they needed, and that he was kind of a model father. No one has anything bad to say about him. His relationship with his wife is, you know, one for the ages. Even on their tombstones, they're, they're next to each other, and it says Baird and Luthien inscribed. Right. Um, and his relationship with C.S. Lewis, I mean, they were so close. Well, I mean, Tolkien um, was a um, major factor in Lewis even considering Christ and, you know, the Christian mythos. I mean, it's it's... You know, it, because Tolkien was definitely a purveyor of Christ as the true um, legend, Christ as the real myth. Yeah. Um, and again, myth not meaning, oh, fiction. Myth as meaning a, a story that communicates truth. He is the yeah. true fulfillment of all, you know, the stories that you see paralleled in every culture and every time and place. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus. And you see there are multiple levels of truth. There's, you know, things that are true just factually, like this rock is sitting on a... I mean, or the microphone sitting on a stool. Right. And then there's truth that it's almost felt like intrinsically, like wi- like uh, wisdom. Mm-hmm. And then on, on every level, you know, Christ is that absolute true myth. On He, he works on the mythical level, da- back in the recesses of your mind, in the, in the very core of your being, all the way up to the, again, factual historical set level. And, uh, and you know, the, he, there's the, uh, the meta-narrative. Mm-hmm. That you see in every major story, it's been it's been chronicled all over the place. Right, and it it, it just shines 
through every, especially in Lord of the Rings. I mean, I mean, if you want to argue for a book that's, there's probably no other novel in the world as sacramental as Lord of the Rings. Um, and, you know, Tolkien kind of commented before and he said, you know, Middle Earth is kind of a, it's a world where original sin has existed, but it's before the redemption. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's before, of course, the incarnation. So, you know, it's kind of one of those tales where, you know, you see the truths of the fallenness of, of man and, and so on and, you know, light versus dark. Um, and it's there. And so it's not like an over-allegory like maybe Lewis White write. Yeah. But it's like Catholicism oozes from mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings and he doesn't have to spell it out for you. Um, I, I do admire, yeah, it's just like simple things. Like um, in Tolkien, you definitely see that uh, Catholic principle of like matter is good and matter communicates uh, grace. And so there's a sacramentality. I mean, you look at Lembus bread or, you know, um, just a little bit will do you, <laughs> you know, this seemingly, you know, honey flavored thing, you know, doesn't have much flavor to it will give you new strength and keep you going for days and so on. And I mean, it's very beautiful how he works that sort of thing in. Um, but it's just, uh, it's just a very large world that, um, where morality is there and it's not just, uh, relativism. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the critiques that gets thrown at Tolkien is that it's like, oh, they're just fighting a, a big dark lord and oh, the orcs are just, you know, generic evil. He doesn't have any nuance. He doesn't understand the nature of evil. It's like, then if you think that, then you haven't actually read Tolkien. No. You haven't read The Silmarillion. You haven't read The Children of Huron. You haven't even read Lord of the Rings. No, no. It's... Where you see... <laughs> where you see it... The, the main problems caused in the world aren't Sauron. Sauron is a symptom. The problem is that man's hearts are corrupted by sin. The ring isn't evil. It's just a corruptive force. Right. And it always pulls towards evil. It works on man's pride. And that's the the recurring theme with men is they're prideful. Right. And I mean, even for people who aren't in, in the legendarium, who aren't, Men, you know, um, Frodo offers the ring to Gandalf and Frodo again offers the ring to Galadriel, you know, you know, so you have, you know, one of the Maiar and then you have, you know, this elf and they're very powerful guardians of Middle Earth, but they're like, no. Um, and because if they took it, they would become as evil. They would become a new Sauron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, you know, power play. I mean, it's hard to, you know put all the words but i mean it's just all there i mean you know you know gandalf is kind of in a way an angel <laughs> you know yeah. he's always meddling in the affairs of men to do you know the right thing um and not only men but of course hobbits <laughs> and, <laughs> and elves and you see you know with the reason you know it's like why would tolkien write about these short people but you see that theme of the gospel that god uses the lowly to you know basically mm-hmm. bring about the purpose of grace in the world you know um and you you see that, um, that the hobbits are the ones who, uh, get the work done. Mm-hmm. It's not a cakewalk, but it, it happens that, uh, you know, the lowly shall be exalted. And, uh, also, you know, just that, you know, these lowly things end up, you know, through their adventures, find courage and bravery and they're changed. Yeah. You know? They don't, they don't, uh, Gandalf says at the end of Hobbit to Bilbo, it's like, you're not the same Hobbit that you were when you started out from here. And so I don't want to say metanoia or repentance, perhaps, but there is definitely a change um, in the the soul. There's definitely, um, you know, 
Thomas Aquinas says grace perfects nature. Well, that's kind of what happens through the uh, toil of the adventures, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bilbo's not the same at the end of there and back again, and Frodo and is not the same after. I mean, Frodo's you know, never the same never until the, the same. point where he, he leaves from the Grey Havens. You know, and so it's, there's always a thing that, you know, you will be changed and something does happen through you when you um, are tested and tried and then, you know, you allow good or if we go to the bigger picture, grace to enter into the life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think we're going to close it off from here. We could talk about Tolkien forever, quite literally. Um, if you want to watch a, an amazing documentary on Tolkien, um, in each of the extended editions of Lord of the Rings, they have the appendices and uh, each appendices has a segment on Tolkien and his world and they're just absolutely fantastic and you know they bring in scenes from the film and you get quotes from all these like Tolkien scholars because yes you can be a Tolkien scholar you really he's, can he's that awesome you know, <laughs> I don't know um, you know in the movies like I remember like Liv Tyler who was Arwen and like uh, uh, Viva Mortensen um, who was uh, Aragorn you know they're talking about learning Elvish and like uh, Liv Tyler is just so crazy about it but you know if they can make Klingon Bibles from Star Trek why do we not have an Elvish Bible exactly why don't we have something in, in, in Quenya Sindarin and even the dwarf language you know you could at least do like the Gospel of John or the four Gospels in Elvish <laughs> you don't have to do the whole Bible but it'd be it'd be interesting um, the apocalypse so in Elvish <laughs> You know, if I had a different vocation in life, and if I if I were if I were the Pope, I probably would end up doing that. <laughs> it's like Jerome may have the Vulgate that he did for uh, Pope Saint Damasus, but uh, nope, I want the four Gospels right here on my desk. You <laughs> And then I'd probably canonize Tolkien too. But yeah, I mean, uh, who, who who deserves it more? Well, I, I, I'd at least miss, ask uh, the local diocese to begin investigating, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but um, Canonize Tolkien, people. Yeah, start that movement. Tw- tweet at the Vatican and Pope Francis every day and just say Tolkien has been an influence in my life. And if you feel that he's praying for you, then, well, please tell the Vatican. <laughs> I mean, um, you'll get Protestants on that crap, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, Tolkien, always, uh, it's hard to do him justice because, again, his universe and his, his writings are so vast and large. But it's a good uh, icebreaker and to consider uh, where to go further. Definitely read the books. Yeah, read the books. The Hobbit, yeah, yeah best icebreaker. If you want to read something that's online, uh, it's a kind of collection of his of his talks. Um, on fairy stories is available for free online and that's one of his essays and it talks about his philosophy of fairy tales and myth and, and all that that's where we get the idea of true myth and uh, we didn't even touch on the subject of catastrophe. holy cow there's so much well there could always be a Tolkien part 2 later on down the road but I think this is a good place to you know just generally talk about him and you know just uh, whet the appetite for those of you who perhaps aren't familiar with him mhm It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone, before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. At any rate, after a short halt to go on, he did. And you can picture him coming to the end of the tunnel, an opening of much the same size and shape as the door above. And of course, that's Bilbo before he ever goes into the Lonely Mountain and sees 
Smog, the terrible mm-hmm. dragon. Um, so it's uh, like you were saying. It's uh, it's Tolkien's kind of condensed theology in a nutshell. It's it's you know you fight those battles that seem insignificant. They're not the the big fights. They're the small ones. Well, the yeah, heart. you you have to. Yeah, your heart has to be. Yeah, converted, but your heart has to be resolved to, to do the right thing before you ever do it out in real life, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a true cooperation with grace. <laughs> Tugging and it's like, I don't want to go into that tunnel with the dragon, but, you know, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. It's been, it's been fun. Until next time. <laughs>